Asia Pacific currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at nine o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Link. Hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Sorry, you took the wrong mic, Giselle. Start again. I took I took the wrong mic, listener, as opposed to Pierre's job is to turn whatever mic I'm on, on. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents, two minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. It is Saturday the 30th of September, which for anybody living born and bred in Melbourne means approximately roughly at three o'clock today, it's a grand final. That's right, that's right. And most of our international listeners will go, grand final of what? It's just a football code. Uh, I, here. Every country in the world understands a grand final sporting event. Uh, no, it doesn't actually. I, oh. there's, there's, there's some, we can have this conversation off air, but uh, not many I can already feel the, all final. of my resources for the next week are going to go uh, into proving you wrong on this. Uh, all right, but before <laughs> we get, we have to say thanks to um, Annie for another very interesting program of, of so that breakfast and the music that you were listening to was um, terrible. Stomping ground by the Warumpi band and No Giselle. They were a great band, and I had the uh, the fortune of actually seeing them live up in Darwin back in 1988, which you know was a, before I was born. That's right. So, if people would like to um, contact uh, Australia Asia Worker Links because they think our real stories are, are so interesting, what are those details, Giselle? You can get in touch with uh, with who with Australia Asia Worker Links by going to our website or the w's dot aawl.org.au. You can uh, also email us at aawl at aawl.org.au. We're on Facebook and Twitter, so find us on those social media platforms as well. That's right. And as usual, we'll have the roundup of news, labour news from around the region. And in the second half of the program, we'll have an interview. Giselle, what's we the don't. Interview? It's not an interview. Oh. We're actually broadcasting a, um, a speech. This is Murray Horton, who's from the Campaign Against Foreign Control of Aotearoa. Um, uh, he spoke at the IPAN conference, which was held in Melbourne over the weekend of the 8th and 9th of September. And he's speaking on the on New Zealand's, in some ways, the, the farce of their anti-nuclear um, position. Uh, so we'll be hearing that speech in the second part of the show. That's right. What was the Prime Minister of New Zealand that uh, made an anti-nuclear? I can't quite remember what his name was. Anyway. Hawk. Uh, Sorry? Is that his name? Not our Bob Hawke, a, a, no, a different no. Hawk. No, no, it was a different, different, different person. Anyway, we'll go, we've just showed our ignorance uh, on air <laughs> yes. uh, globally. So anyway, we'll go straight to the news uh, item. Go for it, Giselle. We'll start uh, by um, telling you some sad news. Many listeners will know that we have been, Australia Asia Worker Links has been involved in the stolen wages campaign of Queensland and New South Wales, some parts of New South Wales, uh, for a very significant period of time. Uh, And about uh, 13 years ago now, I think, we um, put out a leaflet campaign and on that uh, that leaflet we uh, put the photos of a number of claimants um, 
who uh, who obviously have claims against the Queensland government. The man that is featured in that um, leaflet passed away uh, last Friday. Um, so that's the news we bring you. We were saddened to learn of um, an Indigenous comrade from the northern state of Queensland who is one of the central figures in the fight uh, to recover stolen wages. Our brother had started working in 1948 at the age of eight and was the face of AAWL's postcard stolen wages campaign. The injustice done to him was terrible. His staunchness in the struggle to be paid the wages he earned and against the racism that allowed his wages to be stolen is an example to us all. His courage lives on in the struggle for justice, to which he inspired so many. Our deepest condolences to his family and friends. For cultural reasons, we can't we can't broadcast his name. We also can't show his face. So uh, when we um, publish the mini news tomorrow evening, um, you you won't be able to see his face. And look, it, um, it's incredible that it was 13 years ago that we started this campaign. It's incredible that uh, the facts of the case are so clear uh, and they're still fighting for their stolen wages, which really runs into the hundreds and hundreds of millions of, of dollars. We now go to another sad news, really, um, to Thailand, where this week um, the anti-military junta and democracy activist Sutachai Impraset died peacefully this week at the age of 61. Sutachai had a long history of activism and was a survivor of the massacre of hundreds of students by the military on the 6th of October 1976 at Samasat University. Sutachai was a lifelong opponent of military coups in which now Thailand is the global leader and of the repressive Les Majest law. Sutachai was frequently targeted by authorities, most recently after the 2014 coup when he was briefly detained. Condolences to his family and friends. That's not really a title you want, being the world leader in military coups, is it? That's right. Um... Yeah, so it is a bit of a run this morning, Pierre, with um, comrades that we've lost from the struggle. (laughs) Moving now to Bangladesh, where in a tragic incident, at least six workers were killed, with many others injured when a fire engulfed their textile factory in Munshi Ganji, uh, near the Bangladeshi capital of Dhaka. The uh, Ideal Textile Mill Factory, that's the name of the factory. I'm always intrigued by these names. So Ideal, Ideal for whom? Clearly not the workers. The Ideal Textile Mill Factory was located in a mixed residential and industrial area in a multi-storey building. The fire was thought to have originated in the first floor where chemicals were being stored while renovations were going on. This fire is only the latest of several other deadly factory incidents in the country's textile industry this year and is a direct consequence of the ongoing repression against independent unions. Um, And, of course, most people will be more familiar with... um, Rana Plaza and Tazreen as um, examples of tragic accidents in the textile industry. But of course, these um, abhorrent uh, workplace practices continue. That's right. Um, And um, look, the next item is also pretty terrible news. But I was just thinking the first two items that we did read out of the two comrades that have died. um, Yes, they have died. That is sad. But they were lifelong long activists in the struggle. So it is also to um, pay our respect to them. But this uh, 
Uh, next item goes to India, where the last week has seen a number of industrial incidents claiming the lives of several workers. In Ahmedabad, five workers were killed when they were overcome by poisonous fumes while cleaning an effluent tank. A sixth worker died in hospital the day after. In eastern India, nine workers were killed in an explosion at the firework factory, while another three were injured. A few days um, later, another three workers were killed as they were inspecting a blocked sewerage line. What all these deaths have in common is the lack of health and safety measures at their workplaces. Unfortunately, in India, not only are occupational health and safety laws weak, but enforcement is often non-existent. And again, it just shows the, uh, the value of independent trade unions. The imprisoned labour activist Reza Shahabi this week temporarily halted his prison hunger strike after seven weeks. His decision to suspend his hunger strike was as a result of the promises made by a senior intelligence official that they would address Reza's concerns. Given the repression and treachery of the Iranian government against independent labour activists, it's important to maintain solidarity with Reza and continue to pressure the Iranian government. Reza is only one of a number of labour and political activists who are currently in prison in Iran. And um, I was just thinking when I was uh, reading that and looking at that uh, news item, Giselle, 50 days on hunger strike, you'd be pretty weak and uh, in bad health of, of that. Um, we now go to nearby to um, Turkey, where it's another interesting um, textile factory name. This um, one is textile workers at the Bravo textile factory in Istanbul um, are taking action after the factory suddenly closed down. There are about 140 workers at this factory, and they claim that apart from their severance pay, they are also owed around three months of wages. Most of the production of the Bravo textile factory was bought by three global fashion brands, Zara, Next and Mango. Sudden factory closures are not uncommon in the garment industry where competition is fierce and capital scours the globe for the cheapest labour. In global integrated industries like the garment sector, coordinating industrial action across countries is the most powerful response for workers to take. Uh, and we're just going to plug some events that are coming up. So the first one is um, the March for the Babies that is happening in this annual event. I think um, it's the counter to it. Oh, well, obviously, but <laughs> I'm just saying that that is the event. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> that I, got, I, got, I got the error that I made. Thank you. Um, but obviously we're calling for people to defend women's rights and to, and to yes, maintain legal abortions. So um, what is the March for the Babies? They're a coalition of religious conservatives and far-right groups. They've come together, as they do annually, to organise a rally against women's rights to choose. Abortions were finally decriminalised in the state of Victoria in 2008, but there are still many many barriers to working class women in Australia being able to access uh, access abortions and, and effectively implement their choices about their bodies. The March for the Babies is being led by Liberal Member of Parliament, Bernie Finn. A coalition of women and pro-choice organisations has organised a counter-demonstration to oppose their message of hate and bigotry. That demonstration, the counter-demonstration, is at one o'clock on Saturday, October the 7th, commencing at Parliament House, Spring Street, Melbourne. 
And our last item again, it's a, an event and it's another one of AWL's film fundraisers. And this is the um, film called, it was a documentary, it's called Sherpa. This documentary that was done by Australian filmmaker Jennifer Pedham explores some of the politics and conflict between the mountain climbers and the Sherpas who are trying to improve their livelihood. During the making of the documentary, an avalanche killed many Sherpas, including the union's vice president. I've actually seen this documentary. It's a fascinating um, documentary, how it uh, um, explores and and how it evolves um, um, during the documentary. So this is at Monday, October the 16th at 6 p.m. at uh, Long Play uh, Bar 318 St. George's Road, North Fitzroy, Tickets are $20 wage and $10 concession. If you go to our website, you can uh, see more information. So that's Monday, the f- October 16 at 6 p.m. Uh, long play, 318 St. George's Road, North Fitzroy. So be there. I think that's the end of the news. All right, we'll go. It's just on 13 past 9 o'clock. We'll go to a couple of community announcements and um, we'll be back with that um, uh, excerpt of the, um, of the speech. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. This is James Henry here and you're listening to 3CR, 8.55am and digital streaming on 3cr.org.au. Fifteen minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. Murray Horton is from the Campaign Against Foreign Control of Aotearoa. He was a guest at the IPAN conference in September 2017, so actually a couple of weeks ago, here in Melbourne, Australia. Here is his speech at one of the panel discussions during the conference. Murray Horton has been a political activist in the New Zealand anti-war, anti-basis movement since 1969 and he's the organiser of the anti-basis campaign. Thanks, Murray. I would also like to pay respects to the traditional owners of the land here, and all I would say was that we've had a treaty since 1840. Um, It's not perfect, but uh, it's better than the alternative. First, I need to set the scene. Viewed from Australia, New Zealand probably looks pretty good. For example, 2017 marks the 30th anniversary of the country having become nuclear-free by law. Despite there having been several changes of government in those three decades and threats to reverse it flaring up occasionally, it has now become the status quo accepted by all political parties and adhered to regardless of which major party is in government. It has become part of the furniture, part of New Zealand's quote-unquote brand of being quote clean, green and nuclear-free. It's regarded as being completely 
completely in the past. In fact, very recently, the woman who in 14 days' time may be the youngest Prime Minister in New Zealand's history said that, quote, climate change is my generation's nuclear-free moment. So climate change is regarded as history by a 37-year-old. Sorry, nuclear-free is regarded as history. Climate change is a new movement. The nuclear-free issue last flared up in New Zealand in the mid-90s when our old mates, the French, the same, quote, ally that murderously bombed the Rainbow Warrior in Auckland in the mid-80s, arrogantly resumed nuclear testing in the South Pacific. The grassroots New Zealand response was spontaneous and immediate, with mass actions on the streets and yet another peace squadron launched to join a long and honourable history of them. The French very quickly abandoned the whole thing and have never resumed Pacific testing. A whole generation of young Kiwis has grown up knowing nothing else. As part of becoming nuclear-free, New Zealand was unceremoniously kicked out of ANZUS by the Reagan administration, aided and abetted by the Hawke government. Despite Despite dire warnings in the 80s, the sky did not fall. A few months ago, I gave a speech at a New Zealand university. Afterwards, the young student journalist covering it thanked me because she found that what I'd said about ANZUS to be different to what she'd been taught in high school. My point is that as in New Zealand, ANZUS is taught in school as history. But wait, there's more. To give a a couple of examples, the illegal 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq marked the first foreign war which New Zealand refused to join. And right on Australia's doorstep, New Zealand played the key role in achieving a lasting peace settlement in Bougainville under a national, i.e. liberal, government to boot. And how did they do that? I'll tell you the secret. They plucked the people from the tropics and they dumped them in Burnham Army camp outside Christchurch in the middle of winter and said, sort it out or freeze. And actually, because I know uh, friends of mine whose job was to go and find clothes for the Bougainvillean negotiators to stop them freezing. Looking back over the whole 70-plus years of the US empire, New Zealand has always been a much less gung-ho junior satellite than Australia. None of our prime ministers has relished being anointed as, quote, the deputy sheriff by the US president of the day. The last time US Marine had a base in New Zealand was during World War II. We don't host a base of the sinister importance of Pine Gap. To all appearances, New Zealand is a bit player. So what's the problem and why am I here in this room today? Because all is not as rosy as it might appear in the South Pacific Garden of Heavenly Peace. Let's start with a nuclear-free law. It was not bestowed from on high by David Lange or any other politician, but was the result of a truly magnificent grassroots campaign that lasted for years, involved the whole country, and was a model of its type to the rest of the world. What tends to be forgotten is that the 1980s Lange Labour government tried to have its cake and eat it, i.e. by going nuclear-free and staying in ANZUS. The Yanks were having none of that and kicked us out. Thank God. Imagine being in ANZUS with Donald Trump. Now, you don't have to because you are. And that same, same Labour government went to great lengths to assure our big brothers that we wouldn't spread the Kiwi disease to any other countries, let alone fellow bit players in the American empire, and we haven't. As for staying out of the 2003 Iraq war, well, the Helen Clark Labor government did later send so-called non-combat forces there who ended up helping the illegal occupiers combat troops. And the New Zealand military has been, quote, training the Iraqi military for the past several years under the banner of, quote, fighting ISIS. So New Zealand is a current military participant in the Iraq war. Do an online search using the keywords Mosul White Phosphorus, and you'll be as surprised as I was to discover a New Zealand Brigadier General quoted in June 2017 as confirming the use of that horrible stuff on that battle in Mosul. How come a New Zealand officer was speaking on behalf of the coalition forces fighting ISIS, and what has defending the use of white phosphorus got to do with training the Iraqi military? 
Despite being both nuclear-free and out of ANZUS, New Zealand has continued to be a loyal junior partner to the US in American wars, such as in Afghanistan, and New Zealand's role in that war has been under the spotlight in 2017, with Nikki Hager's new book, Hit and Run, proving that, quote, our heroic SAS has the blood of innocence on its hands. The New Zealand military has been in Afghanistan since the start of the modern equivalent of the Hundred Years' War, and a handful remains there today. Indeed, the New Zealand government has just, in August, acceded to a US request to slightly increase that handful in intelligence areas. New Zealand's past and present role in the war in Afghanistan is currently the subject of major scrutiny by the mainstream media, ironically mainstream media owned by Australia. In July 2017, 700 New Zealand military personnel took part in the regular talisman sabre exercise in northern Queensland with US and Australian forces. That is a straight-out ANZUS exercise, so what is, quote, out of ANZUS New Zealand doing in it? What's more is an exercise which rehearses war with China, New Zealand's biggest and most important trading partner. Also in 2017, a New Zealand frigate stepped in to fill the gap in US Navy ranks in Asian waters when a US warship was taken out in a collision with a container ship. That deployment is arguably illegal under New Zealand's nuclear-free law. The fact of the matter is that New Zealand is a fully functioning, or albeit junior, military and intelligence cog in the US empire. Two agreements signed in recent years, the 2010 Wellington Declaration and the 2012 Washington Declaration, have formalised that ANZUS and all but name alliance. A huge release by WikiLeaks in 2010 of US documents about its relationship with New Zealand provided a very detailed account. The powers that be, both in New Zealand and the US, have been actively working to nullify those facts on the ground, New Zealand being nuclear free and out of ANZUS, to get around them, to subvert them and to render them irrelevant. To test the waters, pun intended, in 2016 a US warship was sent to Auckland to be the centrepiece of the New Zealand Navy's 75th anniversary celebrations, a political propaganda role to soften up New Zealand public opinion by being the first US warship to visit New Zealand in more than 30 years. Its presence in New Zealand waters coincided with the biggest earthquake New Zealand has experienced in recent years. We've had many thousands of them, and I seem to have experienced virtually all of them. And that was seized on as public relations gold. That warship bypassed Auckland and joined quake relief operations in the South Island. And New Zealand has bases, hence the existence of the anti-bases campaign, ABC. Nothing of the scale of what you have in Aussie, but bases nonetheless. For more than 60 years, my home city of Christchurch has hosted a medium-level, multi-purpose US military transport base at Christchurch International Airport, which is the wonderfully evocative acronym of CIA. It has not, and never has been, a combat base, but it's worth noting that it is specifically exempt from the nuclear-free law. It didn't feature any of David Vine's maps. I spoke to him yesterday. Its primary purpose is to serve as Antarctica, but that has always covered many more directly military and intelligence functions. It used to be a key link in servicing the US bases in Australia, such as Pine Gap. Its outright military role is much less important now, but recent research by ABC has established that it still hosts US military flights that have nothing to do with Antarctica. The US keeps it as a contingency asset, so Christchurch, which is a self-proclaimed peace city, capital P, capital C, located nuclear-free New Zealand, hosts a US base. The other two bases are nominally New Zealand ones operated by the New Zealand Government Communications Security Bureau, GCSB, the electronic spying agency which is the equivalent of the Australian Signals Directorate. Of the two bases run by the GS GCSB, by far the most important is the one on my T-shirt, well, I hope I base. What have New Zealanders done in the 30 years since we became nuclear free? As one of my ABC colleagues said to me recently, it was so much easier to organise when we had bloody great nuclear warships sailing into the harbours of our main cities. Um, New Zealand peace campaign, uh, the... 
fought the, um, the campaign that led to the World Court declaring the use of nuclear weapons to be illegal was born in and directed from little old Christchurch. That same strand of the newest peace movement was extremely busy with the very recent campaign that led to the United Nations minus the nuclear powers declaring nuclear weapons to be illegal and wanting them banned. But by necessity, these are not mass or grassroots campaigns. They are campaigns of experts. Having mentioned experts, I should stress that one of the great strengths of the grassroots... I should stress that one of the great strengths of the grassroots New Zealand peace movement is that we've been able to call upon the globally renowned expertise of genuine grassroots researchers of unparalleled ability. I'll single out two of them, well known to the Australian movement, the late Owen Wilkes and the very much alive Nikki Hager. It's worth noting that neither of them were academics or um, mainstream journalists, genuine citizen researchers and self-taught experts. Um, Another unique feature that I can think about of the New Zealand movement is that it's, it has actually run specialised mass, mass campaigns directly confronting the spy agencies. Uh, one of the biggest campaigns in recent New Zealand history was against the thing called the GCSB Bill 2013-2014. I haven't got time to give you the background, but that led to thousands and thousands of people coming out on the streets about a spy agency, not about ANZUS, not about military, about a spy agency. And that became the, one of the major issues in the 2014 election campaign. It became front page, lead and centre story every day in the mainstream media, that agency. The government wanted to strengthen the laws of the spying agency. Um, they got it through by two votes and it strengthened it more. Um, we, anti-basis campaign, are a small and specialised strand within the New Zealand peace and progressive movement. We focus heavily, although not exclusively, on the Why Hope I spy base and have done so for the 30 years since it was it was announced by David Longy, approved by David Longy in the same year that he declared New Zealand nuclear-free, 1987. Both things happened at the same time, both things by him. Um, we build links with other campaigns. In recent years, we've had participants come across from the extremely successful campaign against the TPPA, Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. That's been the biggest campaign in recent New Zealand history. GCSB bill got thousands of people on the streets at a time. The TPPA campaign got tens of thousands of people on the streets at a time. When that treaty was signed in Auckland Casino in 2016, there were at least 30,000 people on the street outside, which is not bad. Um, Uh, I'll finish up. Um, campaign, campaigns learn from one another. One of the most successful strands of the historic nuclear-free movement was to get local governments to declare themselves nuclear-free areas. The driving person, driving person behind this was the late Larry Ross of Christchurch. Likewise, the campaign against the TPPA featured a strand that very successfully lobbied local governments to come out against it, and that was actually run by an expat from Melbourne. Uh, I'm now involved in an embryonic campaign to take things a step further. I'm the organiser of two separate, uh, related but separate groups, namely anti-basis campaign and the campaign against foreign control of Aotearoa, Kafka. Um, it has taken the lead in setting up a new campaign called the Aotearoa Independence Movement with the goal of a non-aligned country based on policies of economic, military and political independence. We see the advent of the Trumpocalypse in the US as providing a catalyst for New Zealanders to have this discussion and to decide to break the ties that continue to bind us to the US empire while not, while not replacing them by jumping into anyone else's empire. AIM is in the early stages of movement building and this whole area of progressive nationalism and national independence movements is one where New Zealand can learn from the Australian movement. AIM will be officially launched as part of the next Why Hope I Spy Base January uh, protest in January. So what can the New Zealand peace movement offer by way of lessons? The ability to work on different levels from the elite level of the World Court and the United Nations to grassroots mass campaigns. You need to grow your own citizen researchers who can provide unassailable facts and analysis to back up the rhetoric. Tactics can cover the field from family friendly 
friendly ones, to mass marches, to lobbying politicians, to direct actions such as putting small craft on the water in front of warships and deflating spy-based domes. I'm wearing this T-shirt from the guys, including a Victorian who did exactly that in 2008, deflated one of the Waihopai domes and were acquitted by a jury. Um, and for doing so, walked out scot-free. Pig-headed perseverance, stickability, don't take no for an answer. Both a sense of humour and perspective of vital activities should be fun. Build links between campaigns, find the commonalities between issues, work with fellow campaigners on the basis of what you can agree on rather than what you disagree on, and finally, trust the people. When the time is right, the most supposedly conservative populations will constitute an unstoppable force for progressive change. I've seen it in my home countries in several big struggles in which the nuclear free one is just one example. Right now, for example, New Zealand is doing a roaring trade and Australians coming to New Zealand to take advantage of the marriage equality law uh, that was, was passed by Tory government several years ago. So that, that, in a nutshell, is a brief report on New Zealand and what we can learn. Well, that was Murray Horton speaking at the IPAN conference. We are coming right up to the end of the show. You are listening to Asia Pacific Currents. Um, I do want to say AAWL needs to relocate our office and where we do need some volunteers. So I thought I'd try my luck at um, pitching to you, our listeners. If anybody uh, is free next weekend and has some muscles and wants to come and help us move, I'd like you to email us at aawl at aawl.org.au to an I'll get back to you directly about um, rostering and those sorts of things. All right, fantastic. And even if you don't have too many muscles, we'll still uh, take you. Um, But, yes, that's correct. We're at the end of another program of Asia-Pacific Currents. And um, stand by because we'll have Palestine Remembered um, straight after the show and a couple of community break um, announcements. But that's all from me, Pierre Morrow. Me, Giselle Hanna. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.